Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. At their most basic function, buildings, of course, provide us with the physical space we need to teach our classes and execute our research. Yet Winston Churchill provided a different view. He is quoted as saying, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. Many of the great business school buildings opened in the last 20 years seemingly have this more lofty goal in mind. A goal whereby a business school building is thought of much more than simply a place. Instead, these buildings are more akin to what Churchill was nodding toward, places designed intentionally to draw us together at an emotional level and thereby shape us as human beings. In this episode, we visit with Frank Hodge from the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington to talk about buildings. Frank first joined UW in 2000. Before serving as Dean of Foster in 2019, Frank was chair of the school's top-rated accounting department. Known to many of his students as coach, Frank has won several teaching awards over time and is a well-published accountant. Over the last several years, the Foster School has been on a remarkable pace, building a small complex of business school buildings. They've moved out of some of the most dated facilities in the U.S. and now reside in some of the most inviting space available at a top-ranked business school. From his perspective as Dean, Frank takes us through several stages needed to plan for and construct a state-of-the-art business school building. He shares with us some of the key thinking and design work which went into their most recent building project before any ground was broken. And then he takes us through the process of building that building as well. Well, Frank, thank you for joining us today. We're delighted to have you with us. Happy to be here, Dave. Frank, there's been a a tremendous amount of construction. You basically at uh, at the Foster School, you basically need to wear a hard hat uh, leaving the car and getting into into school every day. Take us through um, that story of of evolution, and but also take us through the um, how do you drill through the roadblocks and inevitably face any kind of building project? Yeah, we're coming to the end of what. I recently learned is a very long cycle. And and we opened Founders Hall, which is our latest building last week. And that'll be the last building we'll build, I think, for the next 50 years. But in opening Founders, I went back and looked at when the process of building new buildings at the Foster School of Business started. And you've got to go all the way back to about 1990. In 1990, a committee was formed uh, to study the improvements in the infrastructure, mainly the buildings of the Foster School of Business. And so that gives you a sense for sometimes how long this can take at a large public institution where you've got a lot of bureaucracy. And I would say it really gained traction uh, in the early to 2010 period. And that's when we built our first building, Packard Hall. And then we built the second building, Dempsey Hall shortly after that. And then we just completed Founders Hall this year. So we built three buildings over the last 12 years for a total of a just over $300 million. Wow. And how many square feet? 
Uh, the new building is about 80,000 square feet, just over. And the Dempsey Hall, the second one, is about 60,000 square feet. And then Packard Hall, which is um, our primary building, is about 100 and I think it's about 140,000 square feet. Boy, that's a lot of square footage. That's great. That's wonderful. Yeah. And, and what's really interesting is, is Packard Hall was 100% privately funded. Dempsey Hall, so the, the agreement that the previous Dean Jim G. and Bobo uh, made with the university is, look, we want to build a new building. And they said, fine, you need to raise the funds. And we agreed to that. And they did a wonderful job raising money. We built Packar Hall. And they said, if you build Packar Hall, we'll help support the second building. And so they 50% of the second building was state funding, but 50% was still private. And then 100% of the third building, Founders Hall, is private. So for the most part, at least on our campus, if you want to build a building in a timely fashion, you need to raise the funds from donors to do it. And is there a is there an expectation of or a formula? We used to have a USC a formula in terms of the naming gift had to be X percent of the total cost of the building. Is there a formulaic approach to that for you guys? Yeah, I would say no. Uh, I wasn't a part of the conversations for the naming of, of Packard and Dempsey, but I can tell you that we studied naming Founders Hall after one individual. And this happened just before I became dean. I'm in my fourth year as dean, but I have been at the University of Washington going on 23 years. So I was, let's call it on the sidelines for some of these conversations. Um, and what they discovered is they probably didn't have a single donor that would step up and name the building. But they did have individual donors that would step up at about the five million point. And so they decided to go with an approach called the founders approach, where they would approach people for five million dollars and then you would become a founder of Founders Hall. And, and we have 11 founders of Founders Hall. And so that's where about 50 to 55 million of the 80 million dollar price tag came from. Good, good strategy. Yeah, it worked well, but you know, we probably would have gone after a single individual uh, if we had thought that there was one out there to support it. We just didn't after already building two buildings. So some of that work, Frank, was underway and then some of it uh, happened under your watch. How, how much of this uh, philanthropic effort did you have to drive and, and what was your strategy there or Jim's strategy? So I had to complete the fundraising. So Jim, of course, started the whole process and, and really got the founders on board. And then when he stepped down uh, in 2019 and I became dean of the Foster School, I had to continue that fundraising effort to get us to that close to $80 million, which we, which we did reach. Uh, and then the entire planning of the building process was completed under my watch. So, you know, what kind of building are we going to build? what's going to look like, those kind of things that happened on my watch. And one of the first decisions I made was to switch the building from what was being thought of as a concrete and steel structure, which our other two buildings are, to a mass timber structure. So our building is mass timber. It's built with cross laminated timber. Uh, and we, we did that for a couple of reasons. One, we talk at the Foster School, as many business schools do, about being on the cutting edge and being innovative. And we thought that if we're going to talk to our students about being on the cutting edge and caring about climate and trying to do things about it, then we need to walk the talk. And so we decided to build with mass timber because the projection is that building will have a 76% less carbon footprint over its first 60 years than a traditional concrete steel building. Wow. Wow. That's terrific. 
That's great. Now, did you do you had to continue some of the some of the fundraising side as well? How was that, and what experiences did you have as a brand new dean walking into something where you you've got to finish something that Jim had been in that job for eleven or twelve years? You know, he he was he was pretty well accustomed to fundraising conversations. You you walk in, you're brand new to this. How'd you do that? How how did that go? And and uh, where were the speed bumps and the glitches, and where were your your hits? Well, I would say it went very well for a couple reasons. One, uh, and Jim was dean for 14 years. Uh, Jim came from the accounting department. I'm also from the accounting department. So I worked with Jim when we were together in the accounting department a little bit. I knew him. So the handoff was very, very smooth. As I mentioned before, I've been at the University of Washington for almost 23 years. So I also knew a lot of the individuals that were supporting the building. And part of that came... Before I became dean, I was chair of the accounting department for two terms, but also working out of the president's office as the university's faculty athletic representative. And I represented the faculty or the University of Washington at the NCAA and the Pac-12. A lot of the same donors to athletics are the same donors to the business school. And I think that's true across the nation. And so I already knew a, a lot of the key donors. So I think that was another thing I had going for me as we uh, transitioned deans. And then the third thing is I just stepped into a pretty good economic situation. The market was doing well at the time. And I, I think that helps a lot with fundraising. I think right now it would be a lot harder to raise funds for a building, not only because of the market, but because of supply chain issues and just the escalation of costs. It's projected, we, we talked to some people last week and it was projected that our $80 million building probably would have been over $100 million had we started today. So Frank, you've added a tremendous amount of square footage and instructional space over the last 10 years. Uh, so have you grown your student body to grow into these buildings? And how does that fit in with the overall strategic plan of the campus? Is this all part of a master plan? It was part of a, a master plan. As far as growth, though, I think people would be surprised. It, it didn't generate a tremendous amount of growth at the Foster School, and that was by design. We were trying to improve quality, not quantity. And so we did start some new programs. So we have seven MBA programs, six one-year specialized master's program, a PhD program, and then a fairly large undergraduate program. We really added some of those specialized master's programs once we had the building in place. And it's because the space allowed us to do that. But we didn't say, hey, we're going to double the size of our undergraduate program, or we're going to double the size of our full-time MBA program. We pretty much kept those programs where they were. And we decided to do some strategic strikes in the market by starting new programs. But I think you'd be surprised we didn't increase the numbers as much as you might think by building three new buildings. But what we did is improve the quality of the experience exponentially. So did you take, uh, I think it was called McKinsey Hall down and, and build on that footprint or? We did. We celebrated that day. I'll tell you what, <laughs> McKinsey Hall. So there were two buildings built in the 1960s, Balmer Hall and McKinsey Hall. And I, I was an assistant professor in McKinsey Hall. Uh, that's where I got promoted here. It was a very functional building. I will say the offices were actually spacious and, and fairly well lit. It just was a really ugly building. It was concrete and steel and the steel was rusting. And and so it it wasn't a pretty uh, structure. It didn't invite people in. It didn't have common spaces. 
if you come to our buildings now, I think what most people would say is they're community magnets. They really invite people in and then encourage you to stay beyond just your purpose for coming. You know, there's a big fireplace down there that students congregate around. We've got a Orange Cafe named after Orange Smith, the former CEO of Starbucks. So we're trying to build spaces that encourage communities so that those happenstance conversations that really are the impetus for starting companies and, and thinking about things in an innovative way. That's that's where those conversations start. All of the good building projects that I've been associated with, Frank, they really they really changed the mindset that we had uh, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s to towards this idea of of community and it's it really can be transformational on our on our programs did this cause any friction uh on campus uh maybe a little bit of class envy um i mean you were doing things that so many of the other colleges who probably also had buildings from the 1940s and 50s and 60s uh take us through that through through those conversations I think that's inevitable as we get not only one, not only two, but three new buildings in place. And, and we have a space that's the envy of not only other people on campus, but a lot of business schools across the nation. I, I think there's, there's going to be some of that. And what we've tried to do is be very inclusive. So as other units have reached out and said, can we host something in your space? We've tried to be very accommodating in that sense. The other thing, if if you're a dean and thinking about building, um, there are two things that I would encourage you to think about. One is whether you get control of the classroom space. So we have what are called foster controlled classrooms where we have the right to put things in those classes as opposed to campus. And then there are other classrooms in our buildings that are campus controlled. And so they have first rights to put things in those classrooms. And you want to argue for as many foster controlled or, or for in your case, your business school controlled classrooms as possible. It just allows so much more flexibility in what you can do. And then the second piece is we were the very first unit on campus um, to be charged for adding incremental square footage to campus. And what I mean by that is the operations and maintenance costs that go with adding incremental square footage used to just be absorbed by the university which essentially means it gets spread across all units because it's an overhead charge. But in this case, they took the incremental square footage we added when we tore down McKinsey Hall, which was 40,000 square feet, and we added Founders Hall, which was just over 80,000 square feet. We're getting charged about $675,000 a year in perpetuity for the operations and maintenance on the incremental square footage we added to campus. And so you want to be very careful about those sort of what I'll call boomerang costs. So you think about building the building, but actually maintaining and running the building can be a significant cost after that that you want to consider. Did you, uh, Frank, roll that into your philanthropy strategy? What, what kinds of different philanthropy strategies did you have as you tried to, to complete these buildings? Yeah, Dave, that's a sore topic. Um, <laughs> we, were, we were told... Sorry about that. No, I, I, we were, um, we were told the amount of the incremental charge four days before we announced the close of fundraising for the building. So we were not able to build it into our fundraising strategy. So we do not have 
uh, current funds to cover it. We have reserves that'll get us through the next three to five years, but we have to come up with additional revenue to cover that. And it would have been a part of our fundraising strategy. We'd love to have an endowment that covers that, but we just didn't know when we started. And then it got tacked on right towards the end. And we had to scramble. They basically said, you can't build the building unless you agree to pay this. So we agreed to pay it. And now we're going to have to find a way to pay it each and every year. Uh, and it does go up by essentially the rate of inflation. And if there's if there's a, a percent of your building where the classrooms are controlled by the campus, can you offload some of the, the percentage of that on the campus? Or do you have to shoulder the entire building's operational costs, even though the campus really takes advantage of you and uses those classrooms that they've deemed campus classrooms. And, and that was a key point. So I made that argument when we argued that the classrooms in Founders Hall should be foster controlled classrooms, not only because the building's 100% privately funded, but because we're being charged for the operation and maintenance. On our other buildings, we're not. They still fall under the old campus is caring for them. So it was only with Founders Hall that we made that argument and, and eventually campus agreed and we were given control of the classrooms in Founders Hall. But you're right, I, I mean, uh, Jim, it's, it's, should we charge people? So if someone were to hold an event in, in the space, should we charge them for custodial staff? Because we're getting charged. So you have to ask the question, should we pass that charge on? And, and then you get into an argument of what does it mean to be a good citizen on campus versus just running things purely from a business perspective? And what we've decided is pretty much when things happen on the campus, we'll go ahead and support that for our friends, uh, fellow colleagues and outside stuff that wants to use the buildings. We'll, of course, charge them uh, to cover the costs. Yeah, there, you really do want to be a good citizen. And, and the last thing you need to do is nickel and dime fellow deans because they look at you as a business school and say, wait a minute, you're the guy that's got all the wealthy donors. What are you doing chiseling me for an extra couple of thousand bucks on something that you know it's difficult for me to pay and you've got all kinds of budgets. So yeah, that is true. I get that one. That's really good. Well said. Tell me uh, more about the approval process when, when, uh, when you and Jim approached the campus. Uh, did you get pushback or was it really, you know, if you find the money, you know, we'll get this done kind of attitude. No, I would say with any new building, there's pushback. There's, there's a lot of why do you need this? How are you going to use it? How is the university of Washington going to benefit from it? I feel that's fair. You, you need to make those arguments. You need to justify why you're raising these funds and building the building, even if it's a privately funded building, because it sits on the university of Washington campus. So all of our buildings are state property. And so we have to make those arguments, I think, to our board of regents who gives us final approval to build buildings. So I had to make those arguments and then go to the final meeting where they approve the project and answer questions about everything from design to how we're going to care for the external environment, you know, the plants and trees around the building to how campus will use the building, all of those kind of things before they signed off on it. So once you have the building approved, and I know that's a, a lot of effort involved. Take us through the actual management of the construction process. I'm sure there's a lot of responsibility and burden on the college to 
have a, a accountability with your contractors and did how much oversight did you have to invest in? How did you personally deal with that? Did you offload that or did you hire a consultant or how did that go? Well, there are two things I'll mention there is one, this was a design build bid. So the architect and the builder uh, submitted a bid together as a team. And so that process, you know, when you're communicating with one, you're essentially communicating with both, which I think was helpful, especially as we got into the pandemic and had some issues that we can bring both the architect's voice and the construction company's voice into the conversation at the same time. The second is, do not take this on yourself. You've got to find someone to oversee the project. Uh, the first two buildings at the Foster School, Packar Hall and Dempsey Hall, it was a uh, a uh, faculty member that was nearing retirement that took this on as the head of the building committee, if you will. And then our chief financial officer this time, Michelle Griffin, is the one that took it on with Founders Hall. The dean's going to be involved a lot. You don't need to be involved with every little detail on a day-to-day -day basis. And there are a lot of details. So you had your CFO on this, of course, but did you have... Uh a building person reporting to you on a periodic basis or how did that work? Yes, we have the head of the construction company that worked very close with us. I would say that he worked most closely with the, our chief financial officer, which was our building person, if you will. And then I was a part of those essentially biweekly meetings as well, where we talked about not only the budget and how we're doing, but some of the key decisions we had to make uh, about how we're building the building and timing and and those kind of things. And there will always be hiccups when you build a building this size. And I think that was just amplified during the pandemic. For example, I mentioned this was a mass timber building. Well, our mass timber supplier declared bankruptcy four days before they were done supplying us with our mass timber product. And it took us over three months to get the last product out of the bankruptcy court. We could have never done that as a business school, we needed the construction company to really leverage their contracts or contacts in order to get that product out. But that was one of the delays that we had in the building uh, that was partly a result of, of the pandemic. What about choosing an architect? Did you, were you involved in the choosing of the architect? Does the university sort of push a certain group at you that you can pick from? How did that work? Yeah, it was a joint effort. So we have a decision in that process, but the university is involved. So there are university representatives that are a part of that conversation. And the way it worked for us is we more turn to them as internal consultants. So they've done this before. They're doing it in other spaces. We would ask them a lot of questions about, is this really important? What are we not thinking about here? And that helped a lot as we thought about who do we want to construct this building? And we ended up choosing the same architect that designed our other two buildings. And we did that because we wanted them to be a family of buildings. We wanted them to have the same fundamental core feeling and structure to them, other than one being a mass timber. If you came, you would see how they're related. And so we wanted that. And we thought that one of the easiest ways to do that was to have the same architect across the building. Yeah, that makes sense. That that really makes sense. That's good. And and they know you, they know the school, they've done the work. And so they've got a lot of that learning curve is is not very steep for those guys. So that's much better. Yeah. And it's a point of pride for them. You know, the fact that they can use our buildings as an example to bid on other projects. So they care deeply about the buildings and how they're built and how they're perceived after they're built. And I think that's really important. When you were 
going through kind of how to lay it out and what you wanted in there. And you had that senior faculty member involved, which is kind of what I did on the building that we did. Did did they have meetings with students, with faculty, et cetera, to sort of talk about, you know, what what would you like? What's you know, give us a if you had if you had a blank sheet of paper, what what would you fill it in with? Yeah, we did that. We tried to be as inclusive as possible. So we invited faculty, we invited staff, we invited students across all of our programs to provide input on what would you want to see in this building? What would you want to change about our current classroom structure? All of those kinds of questions. And then you try to consolidate that information and make some decisions because it's not going to all agree. But we tried to be as inclusive as possible as we gathered information about the key decisions we needed to make in the building. Frank, has this, um, these building projects, have what kind of spillover effects have they had in the uh, in, in Foster more generally? Have you seen a pickup in, uh, in interest or uh, morale, culture, uh, research productivity? I mean, I mean can, are there some second order effects that are, are beneficial you can point to? Yeah, and I think they're huge. Uh, our president, She'll tell you that she didn't think buildings could have this big of an influence uh, on a business school or any school. And I think it just makes such a difference when you feel pride in the place that you are either studying or working. And so I think the recruiting of faculty, we've had an easier time recruiting top faculty. And then you get top faculty here. So your research productivity goes up. We've had an easier time recruiting top students. So we went from being a top 50 business school to being a top 20 business school in many of the rankings. And I think a lot of that is when people come here, they just see themselves and they see themselves in a place where they feel comfortable, where they want to be. And so it's not just about the content they're going to get in the classroom. It's about the community that they're going to be a part of. And I think the buildings play such an important role in that. So it has helped us tremendously with that. I couldn't agree more. I, I know that that it's it's become an arms race in this building thing. And, you know, here we are, we're all talking about, about online learning and distance learning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when, when an 18 year old kid comes to campus to decide where they want to go to school, they look at that building and they go, this is where I want to go to school. They look at two things, the buildings and the kids are going to be with. And, and that's why whenever parents would come to campus in the summertime, I'd say, please don't come in the summertime because, you, you know, your son or daughter is not going to see the kind of kids that go to school here. You got to come when they're in session. And the building thing is just as critical. It's sadly because here we are spending $300 million on three buildings to impress a group of 18-year-olds to make sure they come to school. But yet that's what happens. And I, I think you're right. You're right on the money on this. So it's a point of pride, very much so. And I think it spills over to other parts of campus. So I will tell you that several of our athletic teams um, recruit their student athletes by bringing them into our footprint. So they show them classrooms in the Foster School of Business. They meet with their parents at the Foster School of Business. And so, and part of that is they love the buildings, but they also get to see the community that you're talking about, the students and the interaction and the advertisement for case competitions and study abroad and all the things that are going on in a business school. And I, I think they see that as this is what we want to show our recruits so that they want to come here relative to somewhere else. Great point. Great point. Frank, when you, uh, so you're at the end of this um, big building spree, if you had to do it all over again, 
is there any buyer's remorse? Uh, would you, would, you know, are there tweaks or, or changes you would have taken on? I wouldn't say there's any buyer's remorse. What I would say is you're never done building the building. And so, you know, we got uh, the keys uh, last week, but we're already making changes to the building. And so I, I think you have to think of a building as a living organism almost that you have to maintain and continue to develop such that it meets the needs of those that are in the building. Whether that means you're you're changing the way spaces are constructed or you're changing names in the building, you're changing, for example, bathrooms. That was a big issue in our new building. The students were adamant that we have uh, gender neutral bathrooms in the building. We knew that would be an issue with our donors. So the first four floors of the building have gender neutral, but the fifth floor where the prime spaces where we have donor events has gender specific bathrooms. And so those are the kind of things that you might not know when you start the process that you're going to make to make adjustments even after the building is built. So I would say building a building is an ongoing process. Were there anything, anything specific to UW, Seattle, that you did in the building that maybe no one else in the country would do that makes it a foster building as opposed to anything that someone would do at another university? That's a great question. I, I think what we did is we thought really hard about who are some of the unique communities that we want to honor in the building. And so there are a couple I'll mention. One is we have team rooms that are named after each of the five military branches. And right by those team rooms is a big screen that lists all it's a screen that scrolls through names, lists all of the graduates that are veterans of the Foster School of Business. Great. Another is we we named a lounge after the first Black faculty member of the Foster School, the Thaddeus H. Spratlin Lounge for Inclusion and Diversity. So we created a space uh, for our underrepresented minority students to feel more comfortable in gathering in the building. We also had um, two Native artists do commissioned projects for the building. So there are uh, five prints along one of the walls, and that's what you see as you walk up into the building through the glass. And then there's another project where there are bronze salmon embedded in the ground, and they wind their way from a fountain outside the building up to the fifth floor to symbolize the challenges that salmon face as they struggle to get back up to their spawning grounds. And the five salmon five primary species that are considered red gold in the Pacific Northwest and were part of the economy here thousands of years before white settlers came. So we just thought really hard about who do we want to honor in the building and who do we want to tell a story about as you enter the building. So that I would say that's unique. You're right. That's great. That's very, very creative and really unique. I, I was in your, uh, I haven't been in your new buildings, but I was in Packer Hall a few years ago, and it looked like you were intentional about shaping culture. Like there were words embedded on the floors of the elevators and on the sides of the walls that that just created a very inspired uh, environment. I thought it was really clever what you guys uh, did. Yeah, thanks. I, 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 I'm really proud of the attention to detail and especially the attention to detail for different communities that we want to welcome into our buildings. And I have a real sense of pride for that. And I invite all of you back to see the foster footprint with Founders Hall as a part of it. Can't wait to see it. And I actually have a grandson who's about 16 that has been up to see you, Dub, and he 
it's his only only school he wants to go to and he's got a couple of years to go but it's the only one he wants to go to and he is he's dead set so it's i'm sure i'll be back up there <laughs> yeah it's, it's it really is fun to hear that as we know and uh when they get set like that so then he's got his eyes on seattle no question no frank, question frank as we as we get ready to wrap things up um could you um share uh kind of closing thoughts on if, if i'm a dean uh and i'm listening to this i uh and i and i kind of understand a little bit better the role of of uh of a building and the overall success strategy of of the program and i want to do something about it uh, what are the two or three things very early in the process that a that a uh a new dean who hasn't taken on something like this really ought to really ought to focus on and get under their belt. I would mention three. Uh, one is it was really important for me when I became dean to develop a purpose statement. So I'm more of a purpose-driven person than a mission and a vision. So I wanted to to have a north star, a single north star that we call our purpose statement. And, and our purpose statement is that together. We foster leaders, we foster insights, we foster progress to better humanity. So the short version is we better humanity through business. And I think you have to have that message that the building folds into. So when I talk about bettering humanity through business and developing leaders, then I can talk about the buildings and what happens in them to develop those leaders that will eventually change humanity. Right. So I think it's really important that you be able to tell the bigger story and that the building fit into that as a critical component of it. I think the second is we've already talked about you need to involve a lot of people in the conversation about what that building will look like, because it needs to be their building as much as your building. And I think that community sense and having that voice is really important. And then the last one is, I just think you need to be talking to your key donors well in advance because you need to get them really excited about the process so that you come out of the gate fast and have some momentum. And I think that's so important to, because it's always hard to finish it off, right? That last $10 million or whatever is, is really hard to collect. And I, I think that if you have that momentum up front, it's just easier to clear that finish line at the end. So those are the three things I would mention. It's interesting though, I, I, that your what you call that purpose statement really gives it a, uh, a bolder vision. It's not about laying down concrete or, or timbers in your case but it's it's really about creating a vision and yep. uh, and you and you mentioned getting many people involved I, at some at some level though that means you giving up control and you've got to be comfortable with that yeah though i would say that you know you're not going to have agreement amongst all those voices so it's going to come to you to make some key decisions and I, and and the dean still makes those decisions about are we going to do this in the building or are we going to do that um, how many seats are we going to have in the classroom if an exec ed program wants 150, but your students only want 50? You know, there are some key decisions that will have to be made. And I think those roll up to the dean to eventually make. Well, Frank, it's been great having you. And uh, congratulations on such a, a wonderful run that you've been on. And uh, and we, we wish you the, the very best. Well, thanks to both of you. It's been a pleasure. Keep it up. Keep up the good work. It's really great. Love, love hearing what you're doing. And thanks for the time, Frank. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So, Jim, what did you think? 
I thought that he was very thorough in his analysis of what needed to be done, how to be inclusive, how to how to build the building to inclusion. And for example, the naming of that one particular room for the first the first black professor, I thought that uh, he really he minimized what he had to do from a fundraising standpoint. Yet I know that's pretty significant because he literally raised everything but 50 percent of that of that one building. Now, a lot of it was done by his predecessor, but it's hard to pick up in the middle where your predecessors had conversations with someone. He goes in as an, as a newbie and has to pick up right in the middle of that conversation. I thought just kudos to him for a job well done. Also for just looking at mass timbers as opposed to concrete and steel. I mean, thoughts like that and making it very Pacific Northwest oriented. I, I, I thought it was just really well done. I, I, it makes me want to go see it right away. Right. I, I didn't share this with, uh, with Frank, but about uh, 25 years ago, I, uh, had a sabbatical on that campus and at the front end of all of these uh, building projects. And they really did need that, that new space. And, and uh, I'm sure it's been transformational. What I really took away, Jim was, and, and what I, what I really enjoy seeing in deans and, and college administrators who are so, so uh, careful about this is it's, it's not just laying out square footage. It's not just building new, whiteboards it's really being very very intentional in how you lay out the space and you bring people in this notion of building community for example is just so key in our in our schools today and i really i really like how he brought that all together to uh, to drive the strategy of the school this purpose statement that he talked about that's how we as 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 deans really ought to be approaching these projects and uh i tried to do it at, at uh, the various campuses i was at and i'll and i'll bet you were thinking the same way at uh, at marshall as well absolutely i totally agree i think you're, you're right he had an overarching goal and that was to to show the purpose that he's got for the school including being part of the, being in the building so i i totally agree with you all inclusive in his thoughts. So very well done. The only other comment I was going to make out there is that for us deans who come from public uh, public institutions, we we can argue about whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. But but we live in an era today, and I think we'll continue to live in this area for for years and years to come. But uh, the notion of public participation in building projects is coming to an end. And we really do need to embrace that this is really going to be a private, privately funded building for for public purpose. It's it's the wave of the future that we're all going to have. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. Yep. It's and 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 the building, the arms race for buildings will not slow down. You know, you see this arms race for for football stadiums. You see this arms race for baseball arenas. You see. It's not going to slow down. And and as you said, you know, the old buildings that they had to replace at the University of Washington, that's what they've done. We're all going to have to go through that. You're absolutely right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. 
For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show 